Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. You doing all right? Here we go, back with the Daniel series. So when I was a young girl, when I was about 14, 15, 16, I was a bell ringer in the village church. Now, I know this sounds like truth or bluff, but actually I was. And I had to be taught how to ring the bells, and there's a certain way of pulling the rope because the bell tolls a little bit after it, and it goes ding, 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 ding. And I really enjoyed it. A lovely time. And what, the, what it used to do was when you ring the bell in the church tower in the village, I lived in this village called Selsey, it meant all across the village, everybody could hear it was time to come to worship. And it was a call to worship. And we know that bells have been used all across the UK, according to bellringing.com, since 550 AD. And if you want to look it up, it's an amazing history. I got quite sidetracked and I really enjoyed it. But it was the bells were used for like a celebration or a warning, and it's because everybody could hear it. And in Selsey, when we rang the bell, it let people know it was time to come to worship. And in today's story, when you heard the music, it was time to come and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And this is the next part, the Daniel story, and so we're going to read it together. Here we go. This is chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, he made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Now, this is 90 feet by 9 feet. And he set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image. And at the dedication, every important person in Babylon was there. And you can imagine, they're all waiting at this dedication, what's going to happen. And then suddenly, all these people waiting, all these important people, the herald loudly proclaims a very unusual message. Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Not much choice there, really, is there? So as soon as they heard the sound of the music... All the nations and peoples of every language fell down, of course they did, and worshipped the image of gold. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. There are some Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. 
But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious, characteristic, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of his strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, I love the way the Bible does a great long list of everything they were wearing, were bound, firmly tied, and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that as these three fell into the blazing furnace, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took them up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses can be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Wow. That is an astonishing story, isn't it? It is really quite incredible. These three young men, we've seen in the story before how they've been taken from their homes during the war, serving in a strange land, uncompromisingly standing up for their faith in the face of death. And they had such faith in God, and this is the central point of this story, that they had such maturity in their faith that they stand there with a quiet strength and no compromise. And that's kind of the heart. And in that verse there it says, where they say to the king, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. So confident in who God is, so calm in the face of King Nebuchadnezzar's anger. And there they stand, just three young men in front of a fiery furnace, facing being burnt alive. And they were holding this paradox of, I know God can, but even if for some higher purpose he doesn't, we will never bow down to your image. And holding those things in tension, they stayed true. 
And they had this no compromise trust in the almighty God. And for us as well, we carry this tension. And this is kind of the main heart of this uh, uh, passage of scripture here. That we hold intention as well. We know we serve a God of amazing power who can do immeasurably more than we think or ask. And at the same time, we live in a fallen, broken world where things go wrong. And we hold these two things in tension. And this is maturity of faith. That we still stand. We stand firm because we know him and we know who he is. So we're going to unpack just four things from this story. I mean, you could unpack 40 things, but let's start with four. And so there's four things I notice about this story. And the first one is the statue. Now, anybody in the realm at that time who knew Nebuchadnezzar, when they saw over the weeks this statue being built, I bet they had like a dread or a sense of impending doom, like what is he up to now? And probably at that time, around the 6th century BC, it was common to build things out of wood and then overlay them with gold. And so it's probably you know, a lot of soaring and banging out there on the plain of Jura, building this thing. It was probably built on a stone or a brick foundation. And then this big, tall pillar goes up. And I can imagine the, everyone going, oh no, what now? And you wonder whether... Do you remember when um, Nebuchadnezzar, Matthew, talked to us about him having the dream interpreted, and he was the gold head? And I wonder if he made this gold statue after learning he was the gold head. Maybe he did. So he makes this statue, and it's 90 foot high by 9 foot wide. Now, if you imagine that's a, um, it's a 10 to 1 ratio, so it's like tall and thin. You think of like your electric toothbrush. It's kind of like that, only on a massive scale. And this 10 to 1 ratio is very common at the time of setting up images that were very tall. And the purpose of it was to be seen. That's why it was so tall. Now, 90 feet, what is that? It's like a 10-story building, or if you imagine an average Swansea house, it's four of those, one on top of the other, or 11 Venue 2 parking spaces. You can go and check it out after the meeting. And so the point of it is, is setting up this statue on a plane that it could have been seen for miles around and that when the music played, everybody was called to bow. Now, this does seem a rather egomaniac gesture on behalf of King Nebuchadnezzar. So let's look at the context of why was this statue so important to him. And we know that when he came to power, there was a lot of threat against his rule. And so by setting up this statue, it was like a political statement for him. So it was more political than religious. But in those days, like political power and religion was all bound up in one. It's like, love me, love my gods. So it wasn't so much like a worship gesture, but it was a political thing of um, recognizing Nebuchadnezzar's wealth, dominance, and his rulership. And so it was kind of politically an allegiance thing. It was all about showing loyalty, solidarity, and submission to Nebuchadnezzar's ultimate power. And if you notice, this is why at the dedication, he gathers all the most important people from all the provinces of Babylon, because he's kind of saying, see this, this represents me, I want you to bow, I want you to know I'm in charge, and I want to see that you are obeying me. And so it's this big political gesture. So of course, when the three friends don't bow, 
This is more than like King Nebuchadnezzar being personally affronted because he's proud. What that is about is that the three friends are working very high up within the palace and within the government. And so if you have people working in important positions of power with you, you want their allegiance, don't you? You want their loyalty, you want them on your side. And so when Nebuchadnezzar finds that the friends won't bow, he thinks it's like, it's a threat to national security. It's really um, not just about personal loyalty, but it's like a political defiance. And the Jews who like told tales on them knew this, and they designed it, the telling tales, to inflame Nebuchadnezzar's anger, because it would make him feel um, insecure in his leadership. So you can understand what's going on here and why it was so important. Now for the friends, this is the interesting thing. For the friends, they can't bow. Now, they have been dragged away from their home country. They've gone through Nebuchadnezzar's elite three-year university, and they have served him and obeyed him in everything in helping rule the country. But in this one thing, they cannot, because for them, this isn't just a political thing. For them, this is highly offensive and cuts across their faith, because they obey Exodus, which has the laws that they were obeying. So Exodus 20, verse 4 says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water below. You shall not bow to them or serve them. And so you can see why the three young friends here cannot bow to it. Now, I'm sure all those other leaders, satraps, governors, everybody, were they all wholly on Nebuchadnezzar's side? Probably not. But facing being burnt in a fiery furnace, they're going to bow. No one can see what's in their heart. It's like, I bow or I get burnt alive. Hey, I'll bow. You know? So nobody could see in their heart. But for these three friends, it wasn't about just the outward appearance of like, well, we'll go along with it. But in our hearts, we're not bowing. They could not make that stand publicly, because it went against everything they believed in. It went against their faith, their love for God, their obedience to God. And their obedience to God was higher than the obedience to the king. So we can see why this situation is so difficult. It's difficult for the king, because they're high up in his service, and it seems like rebellion. And we can see why it's difficult for the boys, because it's not just a gesture. It goes deep within them, and it's very offensive to them to be called to bow down. So when um, they get told on, this is a really difficult situation and they're just about to go head to head. And it made me think about there are, sometimes there are things in our lives where we just can't cross the line and we can't be seen to cross the line. And have a think for a moment in your own life. Maybe there's something that is just symbolic to someone else, but for you it's deeply personal about your faith that you cannot and will not cross the line. And when you're faced with those situations, be inspired by these brave friends, because we're very unlikely to be thrown headlong, clothes and all, into a furnace. But let's be inspired by their stand. So the second thing then is to look at the friends. Who are these friends? And these three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I love the way in the book of Daniel here, they have their own story. And it's like in the middle of this like political drama of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this, this story hones in, it like zooms in very personally on the three friends. And usually it's all about Daniel, but here it's about the three friends and what happened to them. 
Now, these three friends are part of the Fab Four, and we know that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know, they were cha- their names were changed to Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these four were among the exiles from Judah. So when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem and carried off slaves, they, they picked out the ones that could serve and be trained in the king's university. So likely, these guys were dragged off as teenagers, taken from their home, taken from their friends. Now, were they friends before? We don't know. Or did they become friends through the trauma of this this thing that happened to them together. And during their training, there becomes a strong bond. And we see these four in all the adventures throughout Daniel, and they become closer in this foreign land. And these are some of the things that you notice about these four. And the first one is they're dragged off, they're out of their comfort zones completely. They are part of a nation that worships God and is faithful to God. And now they're uprooted into a culture that's all superstition and sorcerers and magicians and they're totally out of their comfort zone. They hang on in there together. And what I love is how God equipped them. And if you're ever in a situation where you think, I, I just, do you know, I, I can't, I'm finding this hard, I don't know if I can. Have you noticed in COVID, a lot of us feel we've had just a big loss of confidence. We've been cloistered at home for 15 months, 18 months. It's a bit of a crisis of confidence. And, and these guys, if ever there was a time to have a crisis of confidence, but here God gifted them for their role. And look what we learned in chapter one. It says, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And so they were now in a brand new culture, having to learn their ways, and God gifted them in that. So if you have a hard task ahead for you, if you just started uni and you're finding it hard, trust in God to help you and give you gifts of wisdom and learning and understanding. And we know, don't we, that the Lord says, if, if anyone desire wisdom, to ask uh, wisdom of him. Now, at the end of their training, the king quizzes them. So this is like bad enough having your finals, but this was being quizzed by King Nebuchadnezzar on your learning. Pretty daunting, I would have thought. And it says, at the end of their training, the king talked with them and found nothing unequal to these four in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom isn't that amazing I mean 10 times better not just double but 10 times better and so all four of them were given this gift of wisdom the other thing we learn about these friends Do you remember when Matthew did the story about how King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream, and he said to his sorcerers, tell me the interpretation and the dream, or you'll be cut to pieces. Do you remember that? A little bit unfair. But it also shows how the insecurity of Nebuchadnezzar, just not trusting that if he tells them the dream, they'll make something up. And so he says, you've got to tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation, which nobody can do. And it shows he, he needs the guarantee, and it shows his desperation as well. So in this situation, Daniel and his friends, the four of them, are facing death because the king says, if no one can do it, you'll all die. And this is what happens when these four friends are facing death together. In chapter two, it says, Daniel returned to the house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. 
so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men. And during the night, the mystery was revealed. And can you see the first thing Daniel does in this fix is go to his friends and say, we gotta pray together. Come on guys, let's get together. Let's plead with God. We know he hears our prayer. We know that he can answer us. Let us pray. And we see this group of friends praying together. There's this complete support and prayer with each other in this strange land. And it's like friends who pray together, stay together. There's a real bond. And as we as a church, we approach our 30th anniversary on the 5th of November, I personally, I am so grateful to the friendships of walking this journey together from the very first pioneering early days, no money, no food, it was cold, it was, you know, things got wrecked, and I I remember saving up for our first overhead projector, shall we eat tonight or buy an overhead projector, what new technology back in those pioneering days. And also for those of you who have joined all along the way, and you are part of this journey of Cornerstone, when we bought the building, when we bought this, when we love one another, we care for one another, and our relationships are our most precious resource. It is the only thing we carry from this world that when we're in eternity, our Christian brothers and sisters, we will know them and still have relationship. And I just want to encourage us this morning, just like these four, you know, the fab four, for you and I to guard, honor, and value our relationships. Don't take them for granted. It is easy to take one another for granted, but let us guard our friendships, honor them, value them, And and let us walk in a real love, like it talks about in Romans, a real, raw love. You can't be friends forever without exercising faithfulness, honor, respect, mutual forgiveness, and understanding. So I want to encourage us this morning, let's do that. In 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter writes this, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. That means when we love one another, we can overlook the little things that irritate us and not be picking up on them, but love each other with understanding. And in John 15, 12, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus was so forbearing when we see him on earth and he just went all the way to the cross for his love for us. So a sacrificial love, and I want to encourage us Let's put that into practice. And we see these friends in this story holding together in the most severe, stressful, pressurizing times. They looked out for one another, they supported each other, and they were safe in team and with wise counsel. And if you remember, at the end of that dream saga that went on, Daniel became ruler over all of Babylon, and he asked the king to promote his friends as well. And I don't think this was just like, you know, mates rates a deal for my friends, but it was like making sure they all stayed together to support and rule and care together, to be influencers together. And they really supported each other in that journey, and we can support each other. It's a special thing to build relationships. The church is living stones being built together, fulfilling God's purposes together. So let's hold it in high value. So the third thing about the story really 
I can see is the speed. Do you notice how quick everything happens? It's a really speedy story. Everything is now, immediately. If you don't do this, you'll immediately be thrown in the fire. And it's very speedy. And Nebuchadnezzar is a man who likes to move fast. But there's an area of moving fast that is his downfall, and that is his anger. And he's so quick. This story is punctuated all the way through with he was furious with rage. He was furious. His attitude changed. You think of that time when he was so cross, he made the furnace seven times hotter. Now, I would have thought, you know, I'm not a master at this, but I would have thought they die quicker if it's seven times hotter. You know, if he wanted it to be worse for them, wouldn't he make it seven times cooler? But he makes this, this seven times hotter. I would have thought they would die faster. But also, out of his anger, he called some of his best and strongest soldiers, and in the throwing them into the fire, they die. So his, like, anger backfires on him. It's a foolish thing, and he loses some of his um, best soldiers. And his anger, he needs to like slow down. If only they'd been able to have a discussion because the three friends had supported him all this time. And if only they'd sat around a table and they said, you know, we are, you know, politically, we're with you, but we can't do this. But instead, they're thrown into the fire. And how often do we just have a knee-jerk reaction, just a fast reaction of anger? And maybe we also could just wait and breathe and take time and consider and not react. Sometimes our, our anger is we, we may have made assumptions like Nebuchadnezzar, and we need to look at the issue from the other side or the other person's point of view, like 360 degree problem solving. You know when you have a problem, it's almost like you put the problem there and you walk all the way around it to look at it from every side. And this is a little bit like eating in a restaurant. So this example here, Julian, Rachel, and I were on holiday, and we went to this, we, there's this little restaurant we like to go to. We're like, well, when Rachel comes and joins us, we'll take her to this restaurant. And I've sat in this restaurant before, and usually I'm sat facing the outside, and you see this lovely restaurant, and you can see the chef making things, you can see people walking outside in the sun, it's really lovely. But this day when we went, it was so busy, we were sat on this table, and I am sat like where you're sat looking, and this was my view. So Julian came and sat next to me, but this was my view. See, Rachel's sitting there, that's lovely, but right behind her is the service door to the kitchen. And behind her is like a wine fridge, but it's like, um, you know, black glass that you can see through. So I can see through into the kitchen and I can see the service door. So for the whole meal now, I'm, I'm starting to get anxious for the staff. They look worried and harassed and they're in and out and in and out. And I can see things happening in the kitchen. And because I'm wired up that way, it wasn't very relaxing. I'm like watching what's going on or she's in and out of the door and that. But Rachel sitting the other side of the table, all she can see is the beautiful view of the restaurant, our lovely faces, um, out into the sunshine. She's having a lovely time. And Julian, of course, is in heaven because all he can see is his lovely daughter and behind her uh, a stack of very expensive, special Spanish wines. And we just lost him for the whole lunch. His gaze was off into the distance. And what it made me think is like we all had the same experience. We were all together. We shared the same food. We shared the same restaurant. But we all had a very different view on that experience. And it depends in what chair you're sitting. And sometimes we've got to sit in the other chair before we react. And when something kicks off, just take that moment to look at it 360 degrees, to sit in the chair of the other person, in the misunderstanding or the argument or what has happened. Husbands, wives, family, friends, don't leap to a reaction. 
but pause for a moment and say, if I sat in the other chair, what does this look like from there? What does the Bible say about handling my anger or misunderstandings? What Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, like Chicky taught us this morning, first go and be reconciled with the person you've fallen out with. Don't not reconcile with them and go and tell everyone else so that now they all have a problem too. But go and be reconciled with that person. Go direct to them. Sort it out. Speak in love. This is the biblical way to handle things when we fall out with our friends. In Proverbs 15, it has wise words here. It says, how a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you notice that in an argument, you throw a harsh word in there and things escalate. But instead, if we have self-control and bring a gentle word, we can actually bring things down to a reasonable level. Or Ecclesiastes 7, it says this, don't be quickly provoked in your spirit. Like you can see all the way through this story, Nebuchadnezzar, he's just quickly provoked. Every time I'm gonna crush you, cut you into pieces, put you in a fire. He's quickly provoked. But for anger resides in the lap of fools. If we live a life ruled by anger, it will, it will be a foolish thing and can be destructive in our lives. So let's make sure we walk our life by biblical principle, guard our relationships, guard our heart, and learn to handle our anger. And lastly, number four, is the miracle. This is the heart of this story, the absolute miracle rescue of those boys in the fire. And I love that verse where they say, God can, and even if he doesn't, we won't bow. And they speak so calmly in this moment of huge distress. They're facing a horrible death. Now, although they have senior positions, we have to remember they're not free men. They, they are so calm, and why are they so calm in the face of this? It's because they are secure in who God is and secure in their identity. Now, this is the thing about identity. Now, these little tags here, there is a guy in Sussex, near to where uh, I grew up in Selsey, there's a guy in Sussex dug up these prisoner of war identity tags in his back garden. And they were for all different countries where people had ended up um, in a camp that was where his house is now built. And with these little tags, it was the identity that wherever this prisoner went, it was their identity. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had been taken as prisoners of war. Their identity was under challenge. They were in a new culture that was not their own. They even had their names changed. There's something quite fundamental about the name that you are given. And even their name was taken from them. Their homeland, their name, everything they knew, all their security, it was all taken from them. And yet they stood as brave young men. It's like, you can change my name, but I know who I am. You can make me stay in this like secular setting of magicians, but I know the one true God, and I will never bow down. And that's where their identity came from. And for you and I, many times, there is such a challenge on our identity to prove ourselves uh, in one way or another. But you know, we, they did not have to prove themselves. When they said to the king, we don't have to defend ourselves, it's like, I don't have to prove myself to you. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. We are a child of the king. Our identity is that we are children of God. He is our father, he is unchanging. His love for us never changes. And we can stand tall in our identity, not of what others think or other people's expectations, but the fact that God loves you. 
God has a plan for you. You are his child, and our identity is wrapped up in him. And that's why we see these boys speak with such strength um, that they stand in there ready to be burnt alive, and they say, we don't have to prove ourselves to your majesty. You can see how respectful they are. Your majesty, your majesty, we don't have to prove ourselves. Our God can rescue us from this, and even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance. Can you see if you've got some guys on your team who are 10 times better than everyone else? In the scripture, we can see him saying, well, um, okay, if you're ready now, you can do it now. And, And of course, they don't. They get thrown into the fire. God is our deliverer. There are many things we face, not quite as bad as a furnace. There are many things we face. God is our deliverer. He is there to rescue you. And he wants you to know that and to be secure as you walk through life. So then we know what happens. There is a fourth man walking in the fire. Now this is a pivotal moment where everything changes. There's a fourth man in the fire, and we only have what Nebuchadnezzar says. So he can see, is it an angel? Is it a son of man? Is it a son of God? There's a fourth man in there. Now, scholars believe it's probably Jesus himself walking with them, but we don't know. It could have been an angel. It could have been Jesus himself. But you imagine now something that you are in that feels so overwhelming and difficult for you, and know that there is the fourth man. It is Jesus himself walking through life with you, You are not alone. You're not facing this alone. I'm sure, although they said brave words, they weren't looking forward to being thrown, clothes and all, into the fire. But when they got in there, the only thing that burnt off was the ropes, the bondage, the one thing that burnt off. They're walking around freely. They didn't even smell of smoke after. What is it in your life and my life that is like a bondage to us or holding us back? Jesus can burn that through and stand there walking with you whatever you face. And that is the beautiful miracle rescue of this story. That even though they said, we know God can, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. And there they are walking with Jesus himself in the fire. It's a beautiful rescue. And this is what strikes me about this story. Nebuchadnezzar cannot believe what he sees. He comes close. I mean, he couldn't have come that close, could he? He'd be burned as well. But he comes close enough to see. And this rescue encounter wasn't just for the three. It was for Nebuchadnezzar. By their bravery and their rescue, Nebuchadnezzar got close enough to see it. And as he looked, that rescue was as much for him as for them. Because he was a man far from God, searching, trying to rule his nation. He had like a collection of deities. None of them were really working. And he discovers the one true God. Now, in this encounter, it so nudges him nearer to God and finding faith. Because he'd said to them earlier, no God can save you from the fire. But now he sees a God that can even save you from fire. And shortly after this, he has a period where of insanity and then comes back to his right mind and through that experience and all these things that happen he finds faith in God and those boys through their bravery nudged a king closer to God so the rescue wasn't just for them but right in front of King Nebuchadnezzar's eyes the drama convinced him and he saw and it was for him 
I want to encourage us, our rescues, our stories are not just for us, but they are a visible demonstration to those around us. Now, we don't have to pretend to be walking like a perfect life. We're all ordinary and normal and human. But there are people around us in our orbit who see the difference Jesus makes. Jesus is the strength in our lives. He is the rescuer. He is the healer. As we walk our normal life with our friends, every rescue, every healing, every adventure speaks deep into their hearts that God is real and God loves them. Because God's love is for every single person. He just wants to reach far and wide into every human heart. His love is beyond description. He loves you more than words can ever say. And he wants to hold you close and have relationship with you. He is the one stood in the fire alongside you who burnt the ropes and sets us free. So these boys now, they, this is the last time we hear of them in the book of Daniel. And what a way to go out. What an exit. We don't hear what they do after this. But the lessons for us is this. Just like these boys, to know and walk in the confidence that God can God can heal you. God can rescue you. God is interested in you. But also there are seasons where we are still waiting. And the maturity of faith is to hold this paradox, to hold this intention. That we're in a broken world. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. God is all powerful. We live in a sinful world where there is sickness and death. But we don't build a theology out of it that stops us praying and asking. Because Jesus says in uh, Matthew 7, 7, ask, seek, knock. And that actually means ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. I remember a time when um, we were running the gap and I, uh, took, we took all the, the guys to um, a burger place and I ate this burger and it made me so ill. I was ill for eight years. I just couldn't eat properly. Um, for the first few years, I couldn't have much more than water or thin soup. And as time went on, I could eat a few more things, but not very much. And if I ate something that had been left out too long or was infected or in a dirty restaurant, I would be ill for weeks and weeks. And for eight years we prayed and then one night we were at a service with a friend of ours and uh, he prayed for me and um, well actually what what happened if we've got time but he is he he explained an amazing miracle that happened in his church where in the middle of a preach a lady interrupts his preach and she's carrying her baby who was born blind she said pastor will Jesus heal my baby and he said open your eyes now and the baby's eyes were opened and the baby was no longer blind and I was sitting in the meeting when I heard that I knew God was going to heal me and I started to feel like this pressure right through my abdomen and I was totally healed I went home that night ate shreddies and milk I can eat anything I like ever since. Now, in January, we were on a Zoom called Kingdom Intensive, where we're teaching people about Jesus and healing the sick. And on the Zoom, we had like a, a chance for 10 minutes in a little Zoom room each. So in my Zoom room, there's like maybe six or seven other people on the screen, and we're all praying for each other. And there's a lady in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen, and she said, well, I've got this weird stomach condition, and I've had it for like seven or eight years, and I can't eat this, 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 and this. When I eat, there's inflammation in my brain. It's like I've been poisoned. And as she described it, I was thinking, 
That's exactly what I had. It's the same thing. I couldn't wait to pray for her. So when she finished praying, uh, speaking, I said, let me pray for you now. God heal me of exactly the same thing. I could see her looking to take her healing, like the excitement on her face. And the time was running out on the Zoom, so it was only a quick prayer. And we prayed for this lady that she would be healed. That night, she went home, ate things she couldn't eat before. She started emailing us in the office, I can eat this, I can eat this, I can eat this. Now her husband, so she was totally healed, and of other things as well. And then her husband had this condition that he had like um, little sores all over his body. And she asked if we would pray for him, so we got him on the Zoom, and we prayed for him, and over a short period of time, all these spots went, he was totally healed, found faith in Jesus, now they're serving Jesus together as a couple. Isn't that amazing? And sometimes God's rescue isn't just for you. Her rescue wasn't just for her, it was like her husband, it was for him too. They didn't just get healed, but he found a relationship with Jesus. So I want to encourage us all to know God can, and even if we're waiting, keep on asking, keep on seeking keep on knocking, and that a mature faith is to hold these things in tension. So these are some lessons to summarize as we close. What do we learn from these boys where we see their total non-compromise of their faith under the most stressful situations? So let's just, as we just go through these last points, just want you just to like put our spirit before God and say, Lord, just encourage me, help me, equip me with the one that's right for me right now. So number one is to value our relationships and friendships. Seek them out and invest in them. Number two, slow down on our reaction time. Follow biblical principles in resolving our anger and relational issues. Number three, know God and trust him and live out of your identity in God that he, he, your identity is in him. And number four, for us to be mature in our faith and brave in our walk with him, that we look at his rescue and we keep on asking. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this amazing story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How brave they were, how confident they were in you that whether you rescued them or not, they would always serve you. I thank you, Lord, for these amazing young men. And I thank you, Lord, for your swift rescue. There you were straight away, walking in the fire with them. I ask, Lord, that you'll comfort every person here and online going through something, knowing that you are the rescue. You forgive our sins. You come into our life by your power. You can heal our sickness. I thank you, Lord, for your power and your love in our lives. And I ask, Lord, that you will help us too to have a calm confidence in our identity in you, that we belong to you, we are your children. And Lord, I pray too for anyone who has a healing need this morning. If you have a healing need, just ask God to touch you now. Lord, we command healing in Jesus' name to every sickness and disease. We ask, Lord, that you will come in your power and you will bring healing to people suffering. Come in your power now, Lord Jesus, to heal and to set people free. We thank you, Lord, for your love in Jesus' name. Amen.